Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In our ongoing study of Philippians, we've learned that living lives of humility and living lives worthy of the gospel are characteristic marks of the people of God. But lest we think being godly is a bummer, Paul reminds us, actually he commands us here to the Christian's true orientation, and that is joy. The word gratitude doesn't necessarily appear, but it's clear from the overall context in our study of Philippians that the rejoicing in God is in direct response of gratitude to all that God has done on their behalf. As a matter of fact, wherever you find joy, gratitude will never be far behind. For Paul to remind the Philippians of these truths is not a problem, he says. It's not a, it's not a burden to me to keep reminding of you of this reality, and it's important for their own spiritual well-being. That's his point in verse 1. In fact, gratitude and joy is the antidote in Paul's mind to some of the challenges that the Philippians were facing that we've looked at, this self-conceit, maybe a self-interest, the rivalry and the contentions and the grumbling. Gratitude and joy is the best antidote, antidote to combat those things. Wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that the level of your Christian maturity is in direct proportion to the level of gratitude and joy that is in your life. Let me say that because I really think we see that through the teaching of the New Testament and in the book of Philippians. The level of your Christian maturity is in direct proportion to the level of gratitude and joy that marks your everyday life. What our passage, these three verses, are showing us as well is that gratitude and joy, not only is it a marker of our own Christian maturity, it's actually a safeguard to false doctrine and false forms of worship. You see, gratitude shows that you understand the depth of your sin and the length by which God has gone to redeem you. Joy shows that you understand the depth of God's love and the length at which it extends to your life. And so gratitude and joy are just part and parcel, a response to the gospel. Gratitude and joy fuels worship. Gratitude and joy uh, feeds our humility. Gratitude and joy fights pride. And so these two always be part of the Christian's life. And Paul, in the opening verse, says, well, what are we to rejoice in? He makes it very clear that gratitude, that joy, we rejoice in the Lord. And friends, you cannot rejoice in what you don't know, trust, or understand, can you? That just doesn't work. You cannot rejoice in something you don't understand, something you don't trust, something you don't know. Correspondingly, the more we know and understand the Lord, guess what? Our trust in Him grows. Friends, trust, affection, and understanding are in proportion to our knowledge, experience, and understanding of God and His character. 
Right, let me say that again, because I think we see that in the New Testament. Trust, affection, and relationship grow in proportion to our understanding, our experience, and knowledge of God. This is why, by the way, we choose to study the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We want to understand and know God for who He is. This is why we don't do series of topicals, because when we do that, our understanding of God is dictated by our interests, and we may not understand Him for who He actually is. I mean, who in their right mind would have preached a travel itinerary last week, right? But that's what it was in our passage, so that's what we deal with. Who in their right mind would follow up a sermon on a travel itinerary with a sermon on circumcision? But that's what I got this morning, so that's what we're going to deal with. That's why we want to go through God's Word this way, because we want to understand, we want to experience Him, and we want to know about Him as He presents Himself to us. And that's what Paul's getting at here in Philippians chapter 3. Believe it or not, in these three short verses, Paul is laying on the table really the distinction and difference between true worship of God and false worship of God. And our outline is really straightforward. I actually kind of just jumped in already. I didn't even have an introduction. Verse 1, what Paul is reminding us, reminding us is to rejoice in the things of God, while verses 2 and 3 will contrast false worship with true worship. And where our passage turns, kind of the key to interpret these verses, is that first phrase in the beginning of um, verse 3, when Paul exclaims, for we are the circumcision. Now, by explaining that, depending on your knowledge of Christianity, it can be that, uh, explaining that obscure phrase is the key to understanding verses 2 and 3, and once we do that, you'll understand Paul's point pretty quickly. Now, I know upon the first reading of these three verses, it seems like Paul cannot finish a sentence, does it? Rejoice in the Lord. Look out for the dogs. We are the circumcision. What in the world are you talking about? I don't know about you, but as I read that, I'm like, what? How is this connected at all? But it is. God's Word, our doctrine of inspiration, the inerrancy of Scripture tells us God's Word is totally coherent. This is how these three seemingly abstract phrases connect. Understanding what God has done for us, which is what verse 3 and circumcision is all about. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it. But understanding what God has done for us in Christ will not only lead to genuine gratitude and joy, which is the natural result of reflecting on what He's done, which is what verses 1 about is about rejoicing in that, it will help us defend against the foolishness of false worship that we see coming up in verse 2, okay? So, understanding verse 3, what God has done for us in Christ, leads to the rejoicing in verse 1 and helps us defend against what's coming up in verse 2. So, the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at verse 2, more or less as a way to set up our understanding of verse 3, but specifically to zero in on that phrase about we are the circumcision. I know that seems really odd, but just like the travel itinerary had a lot to give us last week, this phrase about circumcision will have a lot to give us this understanding, worshiping God truly or worshiping falsely. So, let's look at it one at a time. Number one, the essence of false worship in verse two, service, trust, and confidence in ourselves. 
So Paul says, after telling them to rejoice in God, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for these mutilators of the flesh. Now, what's going on there? You need, you need to know, first thing, if you were here in our study of Galatians, you were taught that in the early church, there was a sect, a group uh, of Jews that, that we could probably call them Jewish Christians. Uh, I want to be gracious that way. But the problem is, in this amazing transitional period of God's plan of redemptive history, when, when the gospel breaks the bounds of ethnic Judaism and the nation of Israel, there's a lot of transitional things going on. And that's why I want to be generous and call them Jewish Christians Although Paul calls them evildoers, so we're going to unpack this. The point is, they were saying that you Gentiles can't come in the fold. You, you can't claim to be the people of God unless, of course, you take on the identity markers of the people of God. So, Torah obedience, dietary laws, eating kosher, and the right of circumcision. Then and only then, yes, you can have your Jesus and you can have this, this new chapter of redemptive history, but you still need to have the markers to be the people of God and we're the people of God. So what was happening is with the early Christians, particularly as you know, Philippians represents one of the first Gentile churches, these early Christians, their faith was being torpedoed. It was no longer just the work of Christ, but Christ plus something else, which is not the gospel of grace. It is a gospel of some kind of works. Now, they may have been good works for sure, but it wasn't the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the thing we got to be wary about, right? Especially in the New Testament. It, it's not that works are bad because the works are evil. That's the challenging things. Oftentimes, the works we rely on are actually good things, and that's why we rely on them. But that's not the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul says it, it is not the gospel at all. And we can do that today. We can add on to the gospel, whether by uh, just trying to be moral people, confusing it with moralism, or confusing it with evangelicalism, or confusing it with some kind of politicalism. We can add things to the gospel that are not the gospel message. In the most simplest form, it can go something like this. Maybe you've heard people say these things. Someone is a Christian because they go to church. Someone's a Christian because they read their Bibles and they volunteer their time to good Christian ends. Or you might hear that kind of thing in a religious setting. People might say, here, this is what it's about. You do your best to do good in this life and you just trust that God will basically know your heart and because He's loving, He'll forgive you and let you into heaven. Now, they both sound good at that level, don't they? That's why many people subscribe to that. But that's not the gospel. That is not what the Christian faith is about. What is the emphasis in those things? Self, yeah. The, also, the things that we are doing. I'm a Christian because I do these things. I'll get to heaven because God knows I'm trying my best. And since He's loving, He'll just forgive it and let me go. It's all about things I'm doing the self. You see, the essence of false worship that the Bible continually tries to warn us against is that somehow we can be good enough for God, and if not God, whatever standard of, of righteousness you might set up, somehow we can be good enough to meet that and things will be okay. 
Now, obviously, that's true in a religious setting. It's much more easy to pick out that tendency in a religious setting by we just go to church a lot, we read our Bible a lot, we're doing Christian things. But you know, non-church people do the same kinds of things, right? You guys, you guys know Michael Crichton. He wrote Jurassic Park, Jurassic World. His new movie's coming out, right? So I remember reading an article from him in The, the Atlantic or The New Yorker. I'm not sure which one. And this guy's brilliant. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but this guy was brilliant. Michael Crichton was writing when he was in anthropology class. He learned the fundamental reality of, of human beings is that sociologically, we can move away from certain things like religion, but he says human beings have certain things wired in their core, so we might sociologically crush or suppress certain religious instincts, but they're going to come up in other forms. And so he wrote this article that had caused all kinds of uh, hubbub because he called environmentalism the new religious form of worship. And, 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 and I'm not quoting from him, but basically what he said was, yeah, if you're an environmentalist, you have your own standards of righteousness. You recycle consistently and look down on those who don't recycle. You financially support your charitable organizations like Greenpeace and PETA. You attend your outreach events. They just call them beach cleanup days and hazmat recycling days at the park. You confront energy sinners with the gospel of sustainability. And you only eat organic foods because that's your kosher dietary law. So he says, so you swap out the details, and how different is that from what Judaism or Christianity or in some versions of Islam, how different is that? He says, the only distinction is the, the environmentalists deny what the religious types self-consciously proclaim. There's a divine element to life. But he says, that's all just window dressing. It is this religious instinct, and those who subscribe to that religion get salvation and you kind of look down on those who don't. He says, you do the same thing that the religious people do. And, and, and you, know, you, could, you could take that model to political activism. You could take this model to social justice this or that. The point simply is, human beings are hardwired to create standards of righteousness and acceptance by which we want to work to achieve and feel good about ourselves. The essence of false worship is that we can make ourselves right, and thus ultimately we don't need a Savior, we don't need someone else to forgive us. We can save ourselves, we can forgive ourselves. And in our passage here, Paul is referring to those Jews who tried to impose their Jewishnessness onto these early Christians. And you can see how Paul felt about that, what he says about them. So the first thing you need to know, to know is kind of the context. The second thing is how Paul feels about it, and he's very clear. And they go from general to specific. He calls them dogs, then evildoers, then mutilators. Now, I know in our culture it's hard to think of dogs as an insult, right? Who has a dog, right? We love our dogs. We spend millions of dollars on our dogs. They're our pets. But in first century Greco-Roman culture, they were just a step above dirty scavengers that were just gross, right? But even that insult, yes, Paul, the preeminent Christian, is insulting people. Even that insult is not enough. It's too bland. So he goes from dogs to evil doers. That's interesting. This is where I, I struggle with wanting to give these, op, these opponents the benefit of the doubt because, you know, they were genuine Jews and maybe they genuinely wanted to be Christians but couldn't let go of this, but Paul just right out calls them evildoers. Well, why does he do that? Friends, 
a religion without the message of grace, which is the engine of the gospel, is evil because it will inevitably make us the Savior rather than the sinner. It makes us inevitably the answer rather than the problem, and it relegates God, His character, and His work through Christ as ultimately unnecessary. In other words, it completely upends the reality of the situation between humanity and God. And Paul says, that is evil. Regardless of how good the works are, it's evil because it's deceived us into making, making us think, ultimately, we don't need God. And then third and finally, this last kind of insult, it's the exact accusation. He says, look out for the ones who mutilate the flesh. Here's the giveaway. He's referring to specifically the Jewish rite of circumcision. The Greek word behind mutilate is katatome, whereas the Greek word behind circumcision is paratome. So Paul is deliberately using words that sound the same, at least in the original language, but mean almost the exact opposite thing. Circumcision, peritome, was a clean cut. Katatome was to mutilate something. He says these, these, these dogs, these evildoers, are relying on physical circumcision as the thing that makes them right before God, in the same way that someone might rely on walking down a church aisle at five years of age, saying some profession of faith, or saying, I believe, but having no evidence in their life, no transformation of their heart. And Paul is saying it's just as wrong to rely on some kind of external act and think you've actually been transformed by thinking by doing that act, you've earned or merited God's favor. We can do that too. Maybe if you come from a confessional kind of Christianity, you can say, well, I went through catechism. I'm confirmed, so I'm good. I got baptized right in that tank, so I'm good. Doesn't matter that my heart hasn't been changed. Doesn't matter that I don't have a hunger for holiness. Doesn't matter that I don't hate sin. I'm good. I did an external behavior, so I checked the mark off on the box. We're good. That is not how it goes. See, the thing, the challenge is, friends, on the surface, what they're struggling with is very different than our good works, right? There's nobody in this room that thinks they're right with God because they're circumcised, right? Show of hands if I'm wrong, right? Nobody thinks they're right with God because they got circumcised. But under the surface, the impulse is the same. God, I do these things. I go to church. I be good. I donate time, money. Therefore, you may not say this, but therefore in your mind, you must do these things. Make my life better. Forgive my sins. Answer my prayers the way I want them. See, we are trying to put God in our debt rather than realizing we are in His debt. The essence of false worship are good things that we do that we think somehow places God in our debt so that He is obligated to do things for us. Friends, this type of worship can never fuel gratitude or joy, can it? Because at the core, it is not a response, a recognition of some amazing thing that has been done for me. At its core, it's a manipulative tactic to get Him to do things for me. 
so it can never fuel in my life gratitude or joy. It's only manipulative. So now let's look at the true essence of worship. Let's talk about that. The essence of true worship, service, trust, and confidence in the Lord. So this is why Paul's recognizing that this Jewish idea they're trying to impose on these young Christians, you got to do certain things, like we are the people of God, so you got to do those things, and when you do those things, you'll be fine. And Paul says that is not true, and this is why he comes back with this seemingly out of left field statement, for we are the circumcision. Let me explain his argument grammatically, okay? The, the word for is a conjunction, right? right? So it indicates the cause or reason the Philippians should listen to Paul's warning that he gave in verse 2. So these, look out for these guys, they, they look out for the, the, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, because we're the circumcision. So it can be translated loosely like this. Watch out for these people because we're the real deal. We are the people of God, the implication, so you don't need to listen to these dogs. Does that make sense? Saying, no, 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 they're not the people of God. We're the people of God. But he says it very differently. He says it in a way they would understand in the first century. We're the circumcision. Now, we need to stop at this moment because like 99% of the U.S., none of you have given a second thought to the concept of circumcision this week, or let alone its place in God's redemptive historical plan. So for you, in order to understand what Paul is saying, why he's excited by saying, we are the circumcision, if you don't understand what that means, he might as well say, I like cabbages, and it would be the same, the way you're reading the Bible. You need to understand why Paul thinks that statement means something, or you're reading this with no understanding. Okay, so we need to explain what that means. So we're going to spend a few moments on this amazing thing called circumcision. By the way, I know I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek about this, but if you don't understand circumcision, this is a huge theme throughout all of the Bible. And so you need to understand what role this plays because it comes up time and time and time again. So let's just put it on the table, just in case anyone doesn't know, circumcision is the cutting off of the foreskin of the male genitals. It is an ancient practice that's been performed by most ancient cultures, uh, Egypt being one of them, with the exception of the Philistines. For some reason, we don't know why the Philistines didn't practice this cultural rite. Almost all the ancient cultures did. And so this is why in 1 Samuel 17, King David says to Goliath, you uncircumcised Philistine. It was kind of like a cut down, right? So the circumcision was practiced by most of the ancient cultures. In Israel, it was a bit unique because unlike these other cultures who circumcised at the point of puberty, Israel circumcised their male infants at eight days, according to Genesis 17, verse 12. We'll read this in a little bit. This is where God gives His covenant sign to Abraham. Now, it's unclear why other nations perform circumcision. Like I said, it, it probably was a rite of passagehood from uh, childhood, boyhood to manhood, and, and as if puberty wasn't hard enough for us young guys, right? You, you imagine that conversation? So what's going to happen is your, your voice is going to drop, your face might break out, and I got to, you know, snip you down, you know? That's like, what? But that's what we think is going on. It was a rite of, of passage. 
But because Egypt was the dominant superpower of the time of the writing of the book of Genesis, we're talking the 18th dynastic or dynasty of Egypt, 1500 BC, it's the, the Egyptian view of circumcision that probably has to inform our understanding of, from the biblical perspective. So let's look at those one at a time. Number one, in, Egy in Egypt, circumcision was an initiation rite for priests, and it showed how these priests were completely devoted to the service of God. Again, another thing on seminary application that would be very intimidating, okay? But for them, this is how priests showed their dedication. They were circumcised. Secondly, in Egypt, king slash priests, uh, again, their culture was not like ours where they had this strict separation of the secular and the sacred, right? It was all one. So the king, Pharaoh in this case, was, was, it was all religion was blended in, much like it is to this day in the Middle East. In Egypt, the king priest was seen as the son of the gods, whether it be Ra or Imhotep or any of those. And so this was shown through the rite of circumcision. So circumcision showed devotion and sonship. Third and finally, Oh, well, by the way, before we get to that third point, it's interesting, though, that the rite of circumcision in Israel applied to, was it just the leaders? It was all the male infant of Israel. The implication is that Abraham's entire family were to be a family of priests, and they were all sons of God. So it's, it's, it's interesting how the Egyptians would have known very much, why do these Israelites do this? They would have known because our priests do this devoted to God because they're priests, and our Pharaoh does this because he's a son of the gods. Are they saying that their whole nation are priests and sons of this Yahweh? That's exactly what they were saying, which is why in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn go. And he's talking about the entire nation of Egypt, or excuse me, of Israel. Third and finally, only priests were obligated to be circumcised in Egypt, and as I said, but in Israel, every male was circumcised. So the whole nation was symbolically seen as a nation of priests. This is why in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9, Peter, using words, talking about Gentile Christians, calls them a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation consecrated, set apart to the things of God. He was directly using terminology in the Old Testament to refer the nation of Israel to all those in Christ. They're all priests. They're all sons of God. So we understand now maybe um, what circumcision the act symbolized, but here's the question. Why that particular act to seal the covenant? Why the cutting off of the foreskin? I mean, couldn't it have just been like giving a ring? By the way, you know that that's what this is, right? It's a sign of covenant in marriage. C couldn't it have been a, a simple transaction like give a ring? Why does it have to be so extreme? And, and if I was Abraham, and we're going to look at the passages. We're going to run a little late today, but I think it's important. We'll look at the passages. If I was Abraham, I would feel a little like I got the short end of the stick. So well, let me get this straight, Yahweh. Noah gets a rainbow for the sign of his covenant, and I got to do what? <laughs> I mean, how, how did I get this deal? Can I get another rainbow? So, so why this very extreme act? Well, let's take a look at it. First, let's read where it comes from. So keep your finger in Philippians, but jump back with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 
Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read the whole thing because I want you to, to hear it for yourselves. Now, keep in mind, the covenant God got into with Abraham shows up in three significant chapters. For you note takers, write down Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and then here in Genesis 17. And each of those chapters are significant for different reasons. In Genesis 17 is where the covenant is ratified through the sign of circumcision. So this is what the Lord says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Did I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly? Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring uh, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Cana for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. As for your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." So why this particular sign, this extreme sign? Well, positively, it signified the individual was literally set apart, devoted unto the Lord. It signified that the covenant was permanent. Once entered into, there was no fixing it. There was no going back. This is a permanent covenant. And thirdly, it signified that the covenant made with God comes at a high cost and is not entered into lightly. Negatively, negatively then, what did the covenant signify? And for this, I want to take you again to Genesis. Go to chapter 15 with me. Genesis chapter 15, verse 7 through 18. Listen to this. And he said to him, Lord speaking to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, but he said, Abraham, but Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half and laid them, laid each half over against the other. So in other words, half went here and half of their carcasses went there. Okay, that's what's going on. Um, and he brought them and cut these in half and laid them in half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, he's speaking of their slavery in Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's referring here to the book of Judge, uh, uh, Joshua. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, and Rephraim, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so what's going on here? In Genesis 15, God is ratifying again the covenant made in Genesis 12 that He finally gave the sign in Genesis 17, but He says, here's what's going to happen. Let's cut these carcasses in two. And the person that doesn't hold up their end of the deal, this is what happens to them. Notice with me, though, did Abram walk through the carcasses? The only thing that went through the carcasses was the symbolic imagery of God Himself. That's mind-blowing, friends. God went into covenant with humanity, and He says, if I break my deal with you, let what happened to these animals happen to me, and they walk through it. And He walked through it alone. Check out what the prophet Jeremiah says that helps us understand this. this. So this is how we build our theology. We let all of Scripture inform it. You don't have to turn there. But you can if you want, but I'm in Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20, and this is what Jeremiah records. God is talking with unfaithful Israel, so this is hundreds and hundreds of years later. Here we go. And the man who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and to the hand of those who seek their lives. So, the negative aspect of the symbol, symbolism of circumcision was, this is what happens when you don't keep covenant. Now, it's interesting how on one aspect of the covenant, only God enters into it. We don't. But we clear, clearly see from Jeremiah 34, there are, there are other aspects that we had to keep and didn't, and now judgment was coming. The point is, the symbol, the physical symbol of circumcision was to remind them of what would happen when they break covenant faithfulness. And then finally, uh, it's the reality of being, very similar to that, being cut off from the covenant community and God for Himself, Genesis 17, 14. So here, let me wrap this up. So circumcision, or let me bring these together. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign that you were part, was the covenant sign that you were part of God's people, that you belonged. So when Paul says in verse 3, back in Philippians now, we are the circumcision, what he's really saying is we are the people of God. In the language of the New Testament in Acts eleven twenty six, we're Christians. We are the ones that follow Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying we're not under the covenant of Abraham. We're not no longer distinguished who distinguished that we were the people of God, which in the Old Testament was just the Jews. We are now in this new covenant that according to Jesus, Luke chapter 22, 20, was his, made in His death and His blood. Remember that. Luke chapter 22, Jesus said this, and likewise the cup 
after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Friends, you see, when Jesus was on the cross, He satisfied the same terms of the covenant that the sign of circumcision had signified. He was cut off from the Father. He said, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? He spilt His blood, and He paid the high price of being in covenant relationship with God. This is why Paul in the book of Romans, you can turn there for this one. This is mind-blowing. This is why Paul in the book of Romans chapter 2, 28, 29 says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, and he's using the word Jew more than just referring to ethnic Judaism, right? He's, he's using the concept of the people of God. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. Yeah, you did the religious thing, you're in, but from God. His heart was changed and transformed. So, the people of God in the Old Testament were primarily the Jews because of Abraham, but in the New Testament, that's us, our time now. Any person can belong to the people of God because of Christ. This is the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with His blood. This is the new covenant that all the Old Testament pointed to, all the prophets like Jeremiah, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33, this is what He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, by the way, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." When Christ went to the cross, He was cut off by God. His blood was spilt he paid the price so that this new covenant was not just restricted to ethnic Jews, but it could be made available to anybody who are not in Abraham or Adam, but now in Christ. So coming back to Philippians, when Paul says, we are the circumcision, he's saying, we, including you Gentiles, we are the people of God. It's not these outward acts. It's this transformation that he's changed us on the inside. And then he follows it with three phrases we cannot hope to unpack in our time. We worship God. We worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Jesus Christ, and we have no confidence in the flesh. Each of these are, are, are massive shorthand to huge theological, practical realities that we can't unpack right now, but I want to say at least one comment on each of them. Worship by the Spirit of God speaks to how we live, not to just religious actions that you might think of when you hear the word worship, right? That is included in that, but the word worship doesn't just refer to religious act, uh, kind of praying and singing and bowing down. The word worship in the New Testament can also mean acts of service, like a worker. The Greek word in Philippians here is the Greek word latreo, where we get the, the Latins get the word liturgy, where you hear in churches. It is a work, it's a service. So the point is, 
true worship is an orientation of the heart that is seen in how we live, given to us by God's Spirit. In other words, how you live Monday to Sunday is not animated by your, moral, by your morality. It's not animated by what you think you will get. It's animated from God's Spirit because of what you already received from Him, His Holy Spirit. We worship by the Spirit. We boast in Jesus Christ. This, this boast, this, the, depending on your translation, this glory, it, it, it's basically saying the thing that I'm most joyful and proud about is the work of Jesus Christ. By the way, when you are most proud and most stoked about what Christ has done on your behalf, this ensures, in fact, you will live by His Spirit because you cannot meditate on what Christ has done without your affections being changed without your actual affections being changed, which changes the way you live. And then the final phrase, we place no confidence in the flesh. And by the way, these three phrases, they're all kind of to say one implies the other because I have no confidence in my flesh. I have to put my hope somewhere, and it's going to be in my boast in Christ because He did what I couldn't do, changes me by helping me live by the Spirit of God. I don't have confidence in my flesh because I know I can't, I can't seal the deal on this covenant. I'm not saved by my works, but I am saved by someone's works, right? That's what we believe as Christians. We're not, you and I, we're not saved by our works because our works are not good enough. We're just never consistent. You're not, you just can't do it. But we are saved by someone's works, and that someone's Jesus Christ. We are saved because He was the perfect, faithful Son that all of us never were, son or daughter. And so I'm now in Him like the Jews are in Abraham, we are now in Christ, the people of God. And next week, we're going to talk more. Paul unpacks what it means to not have confidence in ourselves, but to have confidence in Christ. And what a timely message for a culture that is consumed with having our own esteem and confidence. So I hope you'll be with us next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and just the, the, the reminder that the essence of worship, true religion, the essence of true worship is fueled by gratitude and joy because we recognize what has already been done for us and we respond to You. Help us, Lord, not to rely on external rights. Lord, none of us rely on our dietary laws or circumcision, but we do rely on maybe a confirmation class we had, maybe because we said some prayer one time years ago, but we're not looking at the fruit of our lives. We're not looking at the affections of our heart. Lord, would You circumcise our hearts that we would be set apart, devoted solely to You, Your sons and daughters. And we thank You because that is possible because of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.